invite you now to take a Bible into your hands. It is the holy, living, powerfully working Word of God. Turn with me for what has been an ongoing study in the great Sermon on the Mount preached by our Lord Jesus Christ so long ago with words that are incredibly relevant to this moment in which we find ourselves. We have now come to the second of the three chapters. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 make up the entire sermon. We now are at chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6. And for our scripture reading this morning, I'm going to read, have you follow along, verses 1 through 8, and then I'm going to skip down to verses 16 through 18. Matthew 6, beginning at verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So, when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. I like where the King James says, the father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Verse five, when you pray. You are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door and pray to your father who is in secret And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you openly. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. For they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Now to verse 16. Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face. So that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your father who is in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you openly. Father, I ask that you take now the words of my mouth and then the meditation of our hearts together upon your word and may it all be acceptable in your sight. Plant that word of truth like a seed into our 
hearts and let it bring forth a harvest of righteousness that will somehow rebound to your own honor and glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, of course, this morning we return to our ongoing study of the Sermon on the Mount. There are times when it strikes me just a bit odd that I'm doing a whole series of sermons, a dozen of them by now, and we're not even halfway through, on just one great sermon. I can't imagine anyone ever doing a series of sermons on one of my sermons. In fact, I'm just grateful when someone can connect even some small part of my preaching to the work that God is doing in their hearts. But then again, the Sermon on the Mount comes to us from the lips of the living word himself. Every word of Christ carries in it an eternal weight of glory. Who can possibly fathom the depths of his teaching? You see, Jesus is no mere prince of preachers. He is the very king of kings and lord of lords and preacher over all preachers. Some years ago, in England, the British Weekly printed a letter to the editor. I think some of you have heard this before. It said, Dear Sir, I notice that ministers seem to set a great deal of importance on their sermons and spend a great deal of time preparing them. I have been attending services quite regularly for the past 30 years. And during that time, if I estimate correctly, this writer says, I have listened to no less than three thousand sermons. But to my consternation, I discover I cannot remember a single one of them. I wonder if a minister's time might be more profitably spent on something else. Sincerely. And he signed his name. Now, that letter triggered an avalanche, actually, of angry responses for weeks. Preaching itself was castigated by some or defended by others. And, of course, any number of clergy were writing in as well. But then one single letter seemed to finally close the ongoing debate. My dear sir, here's what he said. I have been married for 30 years. During that time, I have eaten 32,850 meals, mostly my wife's cooking. Suddenly, I have discovered that I can't remember what I had to eat yesterday or even this morning. And yet, I received nourishment from every one of those meals. I have the distinct impression, he says, that without them, I would have starved to death a long time ago. Beloved, the whole of Scripture is God's sermon to us. And Jesus' Sermon on the Mount 
is contained in relatively short chapters. Again, Matthew 5, 6 and 7. But it is important to understand that in this one sermon of Jesus is a unified theme, one vital life and death truth that Jesus is determined to communicate in any number of different ways. But suffice it to say, Jesus is calling sinners to repentance. He is calling them to acknowledge a standard of righteousness if one is to inherit the kingdom of God. And he is calling them to the realization that such a life can be realized only by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and by his righteousness alone. I say this because a less than careful reading of the Sermon on the Mount may leave one thinking that this is simply a well, kind of a laundry list of a whole lot of different concerns related to one's religious life. The, the Christian's to-do list, if you will. As we come to chapter 6, it might appear that Jesus' mind is wandering across the landscape of religious practice. And for a moment, to, he addresses the matter of one's giving. We understand that the ancient Hebrew tradition of Giving alms is not a whole lot different than our contributions, uh, say, to the Body Life Fund and works of benevolence that believers do. And then all of a sudden, the, the subject changes and Jesus has some things to say about our practice of prayer. And uh, then the matter of fasting follows that, as we've seen in our reading today. Uh, it's sort of just as a coming to mind and... Jesus is saying, well, I want you to remember this when you do that. And when you pray, remember this. And and oh, yes, when you're practicing a a time of fasting, this is what you should do. And, And oh, yes, is he then just continuing on these list of things? Is the Sermon on the Mount just a kind of condensed encyclopedia on religious life? Is it just a running commentary on a variety of different issues? In the previous chapter, chapter five, he spoke a bit on the problems of many issues. He spoke about anger. He spoke about adultery, divorce. He spoke about oath taking and even matters related to how one should respond to difficult or even hateful people in their lives. Now, I've already argued that this is not the case. This is not mere running commentary on a variety of subjects of interest, perhaps only to Christians. The sermon is a masterpiece of teaching. And when the sum of all its parts are placed together as one eternal truth, then and only then do you get the complete picture of what it means to be a true child of God, a citizen of a heavenly kingdom. And what it means, as we have a banner over this whole series, what it means to be pressing on the upward way. Now, the homiletician in me, well, that's a word that means I'm a sermon maker. The homiletician in me might even suggest that what we have here is a sermon with one great Proposition, and it is the gospel itself. 
But Jesus delivers it, if you will, perhaps in three major points. For all time, preachers love three points. And the congregation would prefer two, probably, in most cases. But let me give you the outline, I think, of of what this sermon is doing in terms even of its structure, because the structure affects the overall message. I would say it this way, perhaps. In chapter five, we studied the, well, the, the, the position of the true believer, the state of blessedness with those Beatitudes in verses 1 through 12, and, and then the similitudes in verses 13 through 16, uh, the fact that we're called to be salt and we're called to be light and what that means. And then in verses 17 through 48, which we looked at uh, last Lord's Day, there are other traits that are mentioned concerning what I call the position of the true believer in their relationship to God. And what we learned is a major point in chapter 5 is that true believers reflect the case that they are indeed children of God. It is reflected in the heart. Or as we said last Lord's Day, if you remember, that the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. Jesus is opening up the heart of his people in chapter 5. In chapter 6, the theme continues, but now perhaps more than position, we're talking about the practice of the true believer, such as we just saw in what it means to give alms in a proper way, what it means to pray in a proper way, what it means uh, to do these various religious practices that he underscores, the practice of the true believer. We will see in a moment that what Jesus has to say about the religious practices of giving alms, one's prayer life, the discipline of fasting is not so much a matter of outward religious activity, but once again, once again, a matter of the heart, because man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks where God looks on the heart. And the scriptures tell us he judges the thoughts, the motives and the intents of our deepest self. Now, In chapter seven, and we're a ways from there yet, but we will discover when that time comes, Lord willing, the priorities of the true believer. That final portion tells us that the only way to live a life is God's way, following his teaching, his commands that will make us, he says, at the end of the message, like that wise man who built his house. Upon a rock. One of my favorite messages in all the New Testament. I look forward, Lord willing, to be able to preach it. I don't know, a year from now or whenever we get through to chapter seven. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus telling us what it means to be a true believer in Christ. The position, the practice and the priorities of those who, by grace, have repented of their former existence have by faith been clothed in the seamless righteousness of Christ and are pressing on that upward way to an eternal glory. It is with this perspective on the purpose of the sermon as a whole that we look at the matter this morning of what many today and in Jesus' day would be called the matter of living a religious life. Jesus, 
has chosen three of the most common forms of expressing religious life in the first century when he delivered the sermon. The matter of benevolence, giving to those in need, the matter of prayer and the discipline of religious fasting, which, in fact, so many of us in our day know too little about. But in keeping with my comments about the unity of this sermon, that it is not a mere listing of topics of interest for religious people, I want you to observe the common bond of concern that Jesus has when I believe all he's doing is taking three main illustrations or examples, three disciplines, alms, prayers and fasting. In each case, the question we want to answer right now is what does he say is important about such activity? And does he say the same thing about those three different religious practices? So let's look at it uh, more closely, perhaps verses three and four again on the matter of alms. And let me see if you can pick out with me. What is the common thread, the link between all three of these illustrations? Verses three and four again. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving will be what? In secret. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Come down to verse six. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you openly. Come down to the matter of fasting, verses 17 and 18. But you, when you fast, anoint your head. And wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your father who is. Are you with me, class in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you openly. Alms in secret prayer in secret fasting, not for show. But in secret, as it were, do you see how Jesus cuts to the quick by what he says? I should say cuts right to the heart, doesn't he? I've said a number of times that this Sermon on the Mount is a test of our true relationship to God. This is clearly seen on these matters in particular. Let me give you the context. The Pharisee of Jesus day. The most religious of all among the religious are being exposed at this point for what they truly are. It's hard hitting. Jesus uses the term Pharisee in chapter five. But in chapter six, the devastating term hypocrite is employed and he's talking about. The same religious people. Jesus is telling us that the most disciplined of religious people are actually 
hypocrites in the sight of God unless their outward activity flows from the inward fruit of a heart that has been transformed by grace. This is important text, important truth. Jesus is telling us that you can act like a Christian. Jesus is telling us you can live the Christian life. And you can be in the midst of your best performance at that, a total hypocrite. Pretty devastating, isn't it? Very convicting. How can I know that my giving, my prayers, and my fasting, which is rather obvious that I don't practice it very much, but how can I know that anything that I do religiously is from the heart and accepted by him as an expression of my love and is, in fact, the fruit of his spirit living in me and not just habitual outward practice. And Jesus answers the question, getting us to think about why we do what we do. He would say to us, who is your audience? When you do these things, who are you trying to impress? And from where do you want your praise to come? In all of my Christian life, this portion of Christ's teaching tells me that anything I might do well or religiously had better be done for an audience indeed but an audience of one. The only one that matters, the only opinion that counts, is God himself. The God who sees in secret, the secret place of motives in the heart. And that activity which he blesses, he says, is the activity that is done for this audience of one. And the Father who sees in secret will reward such a one openly. So we ask these probing questions of our often hypocritical hearts, frankly. Is mine a generous heart? Well, what's one of the tests? Or do I blow my own horn? The Pharisees, who had means, typically, would actually hire a trumpeter to go down the streets blowing a horn while they distribute a few shekels here and there to help the poor. Do I let it slip out about how much I have given or what I have done in helping others? Or is my giving done for an audience of one? I like the way Jesus puts it. It's become a quote that People use all the time and don't even know it's in the Bible. So that, he says, my left hand doesn't know what my right hand is doing. Unless, of course, you're like my son who's left-handed, in which case your right hand doesn't need to know. The true believer has an audience of one. And one's reward need only come from him. And not the fading and passing praise of mere men. I'll tell you one of my real weaknesses where I fall so far short of this 
this Christ-like standard. And that's when I think I've done something good or generous. And I haven't even blown a horn necessarily about it. But the person receiving my best efforts, I'm tested when they fail to acknowledge or even say a simple thank you. Right then and there, I need to be reminded of Christ's helpful teaching. I need only the smile of God, he sang, this audience of one. Are my prayers for real when I pray in public? Am I more concerned with an audience of many and what they may think about my walk with God? Or am I aware that my prayers are performed before an audience of one? The only one who has, by the way, the grace and the power to actually answer my prayers. Surely it has happened more than once that we have said, oh, how he or she can pray. What a godly person. Now, that may be true. But the truth is also this. Only God knows how godly he or she really is by how they pray. You know what? When no one else but God is around. Jesus says in this sermon, your best praying is likely to be that praying you do in the closet in secret. You know what I've discovered about closet praying private secret praying to the Lord, it is this. I discover that I can't be false when I begin to pray and I'm all alone with God. No flowery words, no well thought out words to say to somehow impress him. I know enough about God to know that he goes right to the heart to the intentions, to the motives. My praying in the closet is far more simple praying often than it is in public. Not all of that is wrong for various reasons, but I think you all know where I'm getting. It could be true that the only time God really accepts and receives our prayers is when we are just that open and honest when all alone and praying to an audience. Of one. You know, someone has defined character and integrity as the person you are when no one is watching. That's not a bad definition, but a more biblical one actually is to understand that the person we really are is the person, maybe when no one else is around, but we are nevertheless before the face of God. To whom, the scripture says, is everything naked, laid bare and exposed to the God with whom we have to do. God knows me. That's why I'm often continually in a state of astonishment that as much as he knows me, he's also the one who loves me more and best than anybody else. That's grace. That's mercy. Now. Jesus is certainly not against benevolence, is he? He isn't teaching that we should leave off our attempts at having a prayer life or even taking on seasons of considerable self-denial like fasting. 
But what he is introducing to those first century hearers is something quite new to their experience. And the same message, I believe, is needed today. We do well, according to Jesus' teaching, to draw a distinction between the term religion and the biblical term spiritual. I'm asking us to do the same. It will be helpful. You see, the popularized notion of religion or living a religious life is sort of like this. Religion is man's work to which he expects God to respond. It is a kind of earning of God's favor as well as seeking the approval of one's fellow man. It is that notion that Jesus condemns and frankly, God the Father rejects. On one occasion, Jesus refers to such hypocrites as whited sepulchers, tombs, whitewashed on the outside, but inwardly full of dead men's bones. Man, again, looks on the outward appearance. You tell me, where does God look? On the heart. Religion, it's man's work to which God responds. It is an earning of God's favor, motivated by often the approval of other people. But the Bible says that such religion, while in fact it may bring the praise of man, that's what Jesus meant when he kept saying, these who are living a religious life outwardly, they have their reward in full. That is, they have it in this life at that moment when everyone's applauding. God's favor is ever and always a matter, however, not of our works, but of God's grace and mercy. To have God's favor is to have the grace of God, for apart from the grace of God, it is impossible to please him, even if you were to starve yourself to death by fasting or decided to kneel and pray on a bed of nails. And some have done that in the course of church history. Now, we're not saying that Christians are to be irreligious. In fact, true believers will practice what the Apostle James called a true religion. Do you remember that? We do some things religiously, and this is good, but I do prefer the term spiritual as a more accurate and biblical way of understanding the life of the Christian. Because the word spiritual is a word that means literally of the spirit, capital S, of the Spirit of God. If we're prompted to give where there is a need, then it is to be the prompting of the Spirit of God, not a religious show that seeks the praises of man. If we are praying, then let, as the Scripture says, pray in the Spirit and by the Spirit who helps us in all our weakness in prayer. The test of this is to do our praying in private. That the God who is our audience of one, who sees and hears in secret, will reward us openly. The church today, and I mean the church visible and universal. Beloved, it has no short supply of religious people. But what we need and what God calls for are spiritual people. 
of the spirit people, people who live their lives in order to please an audience of one. This, after all, is Christ-like activity. I want you to think about this as we bring it to a close. When Jesus came to secure our redemption, believe me, he did so without the approval of man. I think about all the wasted years of my life when I went my own way, sowing to my flesh and living in rebellion. Who was it that gave alms to me? Who was it that provided and protected me until grace accomplished its work? When I thought it was my strength and my cleverness that kept me going, it was instead his patient Mercy, his generous and abundant grace upon this sinful pauper. Who was it that prayed in secret for me? Interceding for this sinner before his father's throne while I remained prayerless and full of ingratitude. Who went out in the wilderness alone? To be tempted in every point, even as I am tempted, yet he without sin, just so he could be my faithful and feeling high priest. And who carried his cross and died alone, an excruciating death, crying out alone in the dark, where even God the Father was silent. My God, my God, why... Hast thou forsaken me? And he cried those words so I would never have to. And who was it that was entombed in death alone, in secret, three days and three nights, so that in his resurrection I too might have the guarantee of life, life abundant and life forever. Our Lord Jesus Christ came into this sinful, rejecting world and all that he did, all that he did, he did to please an audience of one, his father. Jesus could testify and be telling the truth. I always do those things which please the father. And did God the father reward him openly? The reward of his sacrifice. Now, this is mind blowing. What reward does Jesus get for all that secret work where men and women and boys and girls did anything but applaud? In fact, they threw their insults, but he did his father's will. And the reward of his sacrifice, as extraordinary as it sounds. Well, just look around, brothers and sisters. We're the reward It's you and I, the blood-bought redeemed, who must learn to delight in the secret place of fellowship with him as he did with his father. We who do what we do, not to earn his favor, we don't have to, but simply because we have come to love him who first loved us and proved it nigh unto death itself. What response does this preacher look for? On this Lord's Day, this message will have done its work if you and I can sing these words as a prayer.
Oh, Lord, just a closer walk with thee.